Hello and welcome back to the Pisky Trap, a series where we explore the folklore, history, and legends from across Devon and Cornwall. First off, a massive thank you to everyone who's been listening and supporting the series so far, and thank you for all of your lovely messages about our last episode where we explored Cornish Piskies. If you have been enjoying the series so far, then don't forget to give us a like and a follow. You can find the Pisky Trap on Twitter and Instagram, and please share with your friends. And if you'd like to support the project further, you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Pisky Trap. Each of these episodes takes quite a lot of prep and research. There's no funding, there are no adverts, it's just me at a desk. So if you can, and you'd like to help me keep this project alive, enabling me to bring you more episodes and to keep researching, then please check out my Patreon page where you can donate to keep the project going. Just before we crack on with the episode, if you're a fan of research and reading around the theme of folklore, legends and history like I am, then I highly recommend you check out a book called From Granite to Sea by Alex Langstone. I briefly mentioned an extract from this book in the last episode, but there's such a wealth of information in there relating to folklore, traditions, stories and customs from all over East Cornwall, an area that I feel doesn't get as much attention as it deserves, really. There's so much great stuff in there, and so much that certainly I wasn't aware of when I first started researching for this series. So, if you're interested in the topic, then I highly recommend getting yourself a copy if you can. Right then, on with the episode. This time round, we're back in the realm of the ghost story, but perhaps not in a way that you might expect. I have to confess, until I began researching, this wasn't really a topic I was familiar with at all. I'd come across the ghost stories themselves, but I knew next to nothing about the characters that were right at the heart of these particular tales. And I'm talking here about the phenomenon known as ghost-laying. Now, if I mentioned to you the term exorcist, I'm pretty sure you'd know what I was talking about, and it might even conjure up certain images and ideas, probably linked with a number of horror films. But in Cornwall, a couple of centuries back, there seemed to have been a number of individuals known as ghost layers. Local priests or members of the clergy who were known to possess certain skills that meant they were able to lay troublesome spirits to rest. Unlike our modern perception of exorcism, the role of the parson ghost layers seems to have been a real mixture of things, even getting caught up with magic, witchcraft and the dark arts and seems to have attracted some real characters as well. Helping me along the way will be Elizabeth Dale, podcaster and writer of the blog The Cornish Bird, which explores many of the stories, legends, and forgotten aspects of Cornwall's past. And we're going to try and unpick what's going on in these ghost-laying tales, and find out a little bit more about the colourful individuals at the heart of these stories. I've chosen to focus on four particular individuals, a couple of them fairly well-known characters in the field of Cornish folklore, and a couple perhaps less well-known. 
This is going to be an exploration into them as people, the role that they played as these supposed ghost layers, as well as the legends and stories surrounding them, and also asking why we don't hear about them so much anymore. Anyway, enough of my ranting. Here's our next episode, Cornish Ghost Layers. Take thine earth, my sin let Satan have it, the world my goods, my soul my God who gave it. For from these four, earth, Satan, world and God, my flesh, my sin, my goods, my soul I had. These are the words from a memorial at the church in Mullion, dedicated to Thomas Flavel, who was parson of the parish back in the 17th century and died in 1682. During his lifetime, and in fact even many years after his death, he was known far and wide for his skills and expertise as a ghost layer. Now, I've got to be honest, until I started researching for this series, I'd not really encountered the term ghost layer. And outside of Cornwall and the southwest. You don't really hear many references to it, but in Cornwall in particular, and we're talking mainly from the 17th and 18th centuries, there are lots of stories where a particular house or village or a certain area in the landscape is troubled by a restless spirit until the locals call in a ghost layer who literally lays the spirit to rest. And it seems to be that these priests, these people who are called in, aren't just your average local vicar. These are people who are trained, who have a specific skill set to be able to perform these particular rituals and practices that are required. A lot of the stories about these characters were compiled in the works of people like Margaret Ann Courtney, Robert Hunt, William Bottrell, Sabine Baring Gould and others that we've looked at before, back in the 19th century, so much of the information that we have comes from them. A good example of a local ghost tale from West Cornwall, which required the services of a ghost layer, comes down to us from Margaret Ann Courtney, and it's the story of a man known as Wild Harris of Kennegy, a manor which is near Gulville, near Penzance. Harris was supposedly thrown from his horse and killed after a white hare, supposedly the spirit of a woman he'd deserted, ran across its path. She says, and I quote, His ghost, in his hunting dress, appeared standing at the door of his house the night he was buried. The funeral, according to an old custom, had taken place at midnight. For years after, he might be met in the vicinity of his home, and he and his boon companions were often heard carousing at nights in a summer house on the bowling green. Few then cared to pass Kennegy after dark, for his was said not to be the only spirit that haunted the place. Wild Harris's ghost 
was finally laid to rest by a famous ghost-laying parson, and put as a task to count the blades of grass nine times in an enclosure on the top of Castle Undinus, an old earth fortification near where he is said to have met his death. End quote. A few interesting things in there. One that I'm not going to delve into too deeply here because it warrants its own episode is this theme of the white hair. For those of you who listened to the first episode in this series, we encountered a similar thing in the legends about the sorcerer of Pangersic, so it's obviously a recurring theme. What really stands out for me, though, in this story, in relation to the role of the ghost layer and their practices, is this is something very different to your conventional exorcism. Here we have the spirit, instead of simply being laid to rest, being set this task of counting the blades of grass at Castle Undinus. Now that to me implies that the priest has some kind of power over the spirit and can command them to do certain things. It hints at the use of magic, perhaps even the dark arts, which puts their role in a very different light to perhaps our traditional perceptions of priests and exorcisms. So, I want to look into this a little further. Who are these ghost layers, and what do we know about them as individuals? A few weeks back, I had a chat with Elizabeth Dale, who knows a bit about this subject and has written an article on Parson ghost layers in the past. So we got talking about the subject and exactly what drew her to these interesting characters. What drew you to the whole idea of the, the ghost layer? I think I came across um, William Woods in Laddock. I came across his story with the, the pesky demon crow um, that was, was haunting his church. Um, I came across his story and I, I just, I loved it. Um, just the bonkersness of it, apart from anything else. And um, started looking into it a little bit more because I thought, you know, there must be sort of other stories out there similar to this, um, which there were. And then it was just the, the, I loved the contradiction between these men that were men of the cloth, you know, they were clergymen and they were Christian and they were, you know, set an example for their whole community and they would stand in the pulpit and tell everybody on Sunday what they should and shouldn't be doing. And yet on the flip side, a lot of them were dabbling in the dark arts and the occult and, and it's just so, yeah, that disconnect, that, that contradiction, um, just, yeah, I found, I found really, really interesting. Ghost layer seems like, I don't know if it's a colloquial term, but I suppose most yeah. of us would kind of say now exorcist, but do you think yeah. there's a difference? I think you're right. I think it's probably a, a colloquial term um, because I haven't really found it anywhere else than sort of the South, Southwest. They were also um, called conjuring parsons as well, which kind of, again, harks back to that sort of magical side of it. Um, I think exorcism, I think of exorcism as being far more sort of Christian-based, um, whereas these guys seem to be using kind of weird and wonderful methods that were unique to them to get rid of the, the, the evil spirit or the demon or the ghost. Um, and a lot of it was kind of magic what we would class as witchcraft really um so yeah i think it's slightly different 
in my head to the you know straight up exorcism that you know we would we would think of normally yeah because I, I was sort of I was thinking about this last night I'd almost I'm like googling like exorcism definition and there are little differences because I think I don't know how much the idea of the sort of the ghost layer in in this instance how much that's a thing outside of the southwest or is it yeah do you think it's quite unique or do you think that it's just it had different names elsewhere Uh, yeah I think that's probably it I think it had different names in other places but when I was doing the research I think I write it in the blog post that I found the majority of the stories that I found came from sort of Devon and and particularly um, Cornwall. Um, I'm sure they probably, um, you know, you would find similar stories elsewhere in the in the country. Um, But as you say, ghost layer, that term seems to be fairly unique to to the southwest. So I think we've established there that there is a fundamental difference between exorcism and ghost laying, and that the role is very much caught up with magic, sorcery, even witchcraft. In these stories, they come across as real personalities, real characters, sometimes as a real force to be reckoned with. But what do we know about them? Not just as folkloric characters, but as real people. I want to begin with this man, Flavel over in Mullion. Is there any more information about him? Do you say Flavel or Flavel, the guy in Mullion? I've been saying Flavel, but yeah. I have no idea whether I'm right or wrong. Parson Thomas Flavel, isn't it, um, of Mullion. And yeah, he's a bit of a dude. And you're right, that their personality actually is as much of a story as what they're doing. You know, these were really charismatic men. And, and quite notorious in, in their, their communities. Um, and I, I kind of, yeah, they have a huge presence about them, don't they? When you're reading about them, you, you can kind of imagine them walking into a room and they would take up all the space, you know? They just seem these in, incredibly sort of big personalities. And yeah, Thomas Lavelle, he, he was at Mullion Church um, for about 40 years. And um, I think he died in like, 1682 and uh yeah he was there for for 40 odd years so a a massive part of the the mullion community and and beyond his role as as the vicar or as a ghost layer he was also um a real staunch royalist supporter during the civil war and there's this brilliant story that i love about he he apparently um swore this oath that he would never cut his beard um, until the king was returned to the throne and, and consequently he had a girt long, <laughs> long beard <laughs> for most of his life. Um, so, yeah. My image, the moment I read that, it was somewhere between Dumbledore and Brian Blessed, the kind of person <laughs> I conjured up that has this real presence. Yeah, yeah, totally. The moment yeah. you hear that, you almost think wizard. Yeah, exactly. And this is what I find so bizarre and, and contradictory because we're li- they were living in a time that isn't so far away from women being burned to the stake for witchcraft. And there's just this, the, what they're doing is so close to witchcraft. You've got to wonder how they, how they got away with it in a way. And I think the fact that they were men of the cloth 
and that they were men probably protected them in a lot of ways because you know Cornwall was still an incredibly superstitious place obviously at, at that time and um, there were lots of men and women who were referred to as sort of cunning folk in, in Cornwall who would you know um, protect people from evil spirits and from the evil eye and you know give you talismans and give you sort of herbal cures for different things and they were kind of um, living on the edge, if you know what I mean, of society. Whereas these guys, they were slap bang in the middle. You know, they, they were the ones that on a Sunday told you right from wrong and how you should be living. And so I, I just love that, that, that bizarre sort of um, contradiction in, in their lives. Yeah. A lot to delve into here then when it comes to Thomas Flavel. Let's start by looking at some of the stories that earned him this reputation. The author and botanist the Reverend C.A. Johns writes of Mullion and Flavel in his book A Week at the Lizard, published in 1848. He says, and I quote, This Thomas Flavel, during his life, attained great celebrity for his skill in the questionable art of laying ghosts. His fame still lingers in the memories of the more superstitious of the inhabitants through the following ridiculous stories. So John's there demonstrating the level of scepticism, cynicism perhaps, that some people had about some of these stories by this point in the 19th century. He goes on to retell one of the most famous stories about Flavel. On one occasion, when he had gone to church, his servant girl opened a book in his study, whereupon a host of spirits sprang up all around her. Her master observed this, though then occupied at church, closed his book and dismissed the congregation. On his return home, he took up the book with which his servant had been meddling and read backwards the passage which she had been reading, at the same time laying about him lustily with his walking cane, whereupon all the spirits took their departure, but not before they had pinched the servant girl black and blue. End quote. A lot going on there, really. We have this idea that Flavel has a library filled with tomes, some in which spirits have been confined, which instantly takes us into the realm of magic and sorcery. Then we have this concept that Flavel is able to sense from afar that his maid has been meddling with his books and runs back from church to deal with the problem, battling the ghosts with the aid of his walking cane and either banishing them completely or returning them to their confinement. There's another story of him being called upon to rid a parish of a troublesome ghost and demanding the large fee of five guineas for doing so. Two of the locals decide that they're going to hide so that they can see these rites and practices performed for themselves and also probably to make sure it's actually being done. We're told that Flavel entered the churchyard with a book in one hand and a horsewhip in the other. As he began to crack the whip, the two men who've been hiding basically managed to scare the hell out of each other and run away, presumably leaving Flavel to perform his duties undisturbed. Yeah, I just find it really, uh, really interesting that these men got away with it in a way. You know, and a lot of these guys were actually charging 
for their services as a ghost layer. Um, you know, this wasn't a philanthropic thing that they just did, you know, for the good of the community. They, they actually took money in the same way that cunning folk or witches would have wanted payment. They were getting payment as well for doing it and quite a lot of money in some yeah. cases you know it wasn't cheap <laughs> to hire their services to get rid of the the demon in your downstairs cupboard well this is it and with reading thomas's story was it five guineas that he was charging yeah yeah i think you're think, right how do people get that money is it a case of literally almost a community getting together to be able to pay that if there's yeah. i don't know there's a spirit troubling the village but yeah. how much is it, It to me, it feels slightly opportunistic on his part. I, I That's yeah. how I read it. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, it does in a way. You know, that you're right. It was five guineas that he was said to have charged, which I think I converted, worked out about £100 in today's money. But in terms of, of buying power back in, you know, the 17th century, it was a lot of money yeah. that, and he was charging. Now, whether he charged that for everything or not, I mean, I, I don't know. I can't I can't say, you know, that might have been a big, big job, you know, getting rid of the, the devil himself or something. But, yeah, you are right. It does feel a little bit opportunistic. Yeah, it does. Given that Parsons like Flavel seem to have been offering their services for what could be quite a reasonable sum, you have to wonder... How much were they using this reputation, these stories and these legends to their own advantage? I wonder how much it's sort of, did this story get passed to his congregation? It's like, don't look into what I'm doing too much. Why aren't you in church on Sunday? Um, yeah. And it, like maybe cultivating this reputation of I've got this arcane library of yeah. I have this mystical power. Do exactly. you then almost justify... So that's what it's going to cost you five guineas? Mm, mm. I don't know, because there's so many ways to interpret that. And I also think with this, especially with this second sight thing, um, it, what a way to control people, what a way to control your congregation by making them believe that you, you know what they're doing behind closed doors, that you you know when they're sinning, you know, before they do, <laughs> yeah. you know it already. So, yeah, it's, it's a great way um, to get people to conform, isn't it? Alongside Flavel's reputation as a ghost layer, we're also told that he was a royalist who played a prominent role in an uprising against the parliamentarians in the Second Civil War. Yeah, there's this story, yeah, that he he raised an army um, of, of rebels. I don't know a lot about it. I think it was called the Gear Route, okay. something like that. And, yeah, and he got into a lot of trouble um, for yeah. that. He was kicked out of his home by the Cromwellian um, army um, and forced to leave Mullion, although they did let him return again in the end but he did yeah he did get into quite a bit of trouble he yeah he was a rebel rouser during the the civil war being a bit of a history geek i wanted to look a little bit further into this so the gear route was part of a royalist uprising that took place in cornwall in may of 1648 it's named after gear the area in which the conflict took place which is sort of between Morgan and the Helford River. So there's a fight between the parliamentarians and the royalists in Penzance, which the parliamentarians win. 
when news then arrives that more rebels are gathering not just at Helston, but to the south in the churchyard at Mullion, where 120 of them have rallied together. And I think you can probably guess who's leading them. After a skirmish at Morgan Church where a few rebels are killed, the main force meets at a place described as Trevilian's Barn on top of the hill above Gear Bridge. Basically, the parliamentarians turn up with a much larger force than the rebels were expecting, and the whole thing turns into a rout, with the rebel forces disbanding and there's very few casualties, hence the name the Gear Rout. There's a journal by Mark Stoyle entitled The Gear Rout, The Cornish Uprising of 1648 and the Second Civil War, and he has this to say, and I quote, Of all the rebel captains, only two are not known to have served in the army of Charles I. An obscure individual named Glover, who helped command the Lizard insurgents, and Thomas Flavel, vicar of Mullion, who, following in the footsteps of an earlier generation of West Cornish rebel clerics, put himself at the head of his parishioners and led them into battle. Flavel, whose participation in the Rising has gone unnoted by past scholars, was clearly a remarkable man. A renowned exorcist and layer of ghosts, his own shade is said to have troubled the parish of Mullion long after his death. As late as the 19th century, the spot where his spectre had finally been laid to rest was still pointed out to the curious. Some measure, perhaps, of the local reputation that Flavel had enjoyed during his lifetime. End quote. So I think that gives us some sense of the man himself in the context of the rebellion. As Stoyle puts it, Flavel's most important attributes weren't his skills as a cleric or a ghost layer, but his stout royalism. He's said to have vowed never to shave off his beard until the return of his majesty to his kingdoms. So we have the fairly powerful image of this long-bearded vicar rallying his congregation and leading them into the battle in the name of the king. Little wonder, then, that he gained such a reputation over the years. Then we have this interesting story that alongside being a ghost layer, he himself returned to haunt his parish. Margaret Ann Courtney writes, and I quote, To the present day, a spot is pointed out on the downs, named Hervan Gutter, where Thomas Flavel's own ghost was laid by a clergyman, of whom he said before his death, When he comes, I must go. Now, those words are interesting, and there's something that I want to come back to a little bit later. I want to move on now to the village of Wendron, which is just a couple of miles north of Helston, and to another parson by the name of Jago. The ghost story surrounding Wendron was actually the first time that I saw the term ghost layer mentioned, and it's all caught up with tales and superstitions surrounding the ghost of a man named Tucker, who was said to haunt the crossroads on the outskirts of Wendron. In fact, if you look on the map today, that crossroads is at a junction with the B3297 and Rose Lane. And Rose Lane, in particular, seems to have been in existence for a long time, because it's actually mentioned in some of the stories. Robert Hunt writes, and I quote, 
On the bleak road between Helston and Wendron Churchtown, at its highest and wildest spot, three roads meet about a quarter of a mile from the latter place. Here, at Three Cross, as the place is called, years ago, when the downs being unenclosed, it was more desolate than it is even now, a poor suicide named Tucker was buried. Few liked to pass up Rose Lane leading there after nightfall, for Tucker's shade had more than once been seen. End quote. Tucker's ghost was said to have been laid to rest by Parson Jago. So, what do we know about him and his activities at Wendron? Robert Jago, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, he was vicar at, um, at Wendron um, near Helston um, in sort of the 17th century again. Um, and he was said to be this all-powerful ghost layer that no ghost could resist his powers, you know. Um, if you were in trouble, who are you going to call? You're going to call <laughs> Robert Jago. And, yeah, the, the, that's the... the um, the sort of famous story about him is about the ghost of, of Tucker. Um, and I wasn't able to, in my research, find out what Tucker's first name was. I, I couldn't um, locate him in the records anywhere. But the story goes that um, Tucker very sadly took his own life. And in those days, if you had committed suicide, you weren't allowed to be buried on consecrated ground. So he was... Um, he was buried at a crossroads, which obviously still exists in Wendron. Um, I think it's called Row, Row Lane. Um, and he was buried there. And then local people, for whatever reason, started to believe that that particular stretch of road was haunted and, and they wouldn't go down there after dark. And then enter a local farmer who had had one too many down the pub and don't know why, but decided that he was big enough and brave enough to go down Row Lane after dark. And uh, not only that, he started taunting Tucker's ghost and, um, you know, basically show your face or, you know, come out, you know, I want to see you or along those lines. And then from then on, believed that he was being haunted by Tucker and, uh, yeah, ended up going to the, the Reverend Jago to exorcise uh, this this ghost this tale of tucker haunting the crossroads i find interesting because it feeds into a common theme that we encounter from all over of crossroads and parish boundaries basically being places that you don't want to linger at night and often there are ghost stories associated with them in devon these places are sometimes referred to as wished spots Wished being a colloquial term for a ghost or a spirit. I suspect a lot of it has to do with the fact that criminals were often hanged or hung in a gibbet at a crossroads between parish boundaries, their remains then buried in an unmarked grave nearby. Similar practices apply to those who had taken their own life. Suicide was seen as going against the natural order of things, going against God's plan, if you like. Essentially, at that time, it's treated as a crime. So the person is interred, quite literally, on the fringes of society, well away from the village or town, and at a crossroads, a place in between places. Sometimes, as a final act of indignity, 
the person was buried with a stake driven through the heart, or face down, or in some other unconventional positioning. And some historians think this could have been a final ritual humiliation to serve as a warning to others, but also because the belief persisted that their restless spirit might return to haunt the living. And so by burying them at a crossroads, the spirit would become confused and wouldn't be able to find their way back. The stake through the heart or the face-down position may be an added measure to prevent them returning to haunt the living. It seems, though, that Tucker's spirit didn't become a real problem until this one particular farmer that Liz mentioned earlier decided to disturb him. Robert Hunt writes, One man, however, valiant in his cups, on his return from Helston Market, cracked his whip and shouted lustily, Arise, Tucker, as he passed the place. It is said Tucker did arise, and fixed himself on the saddle behind the man as he rode on horseback, and accompanied him. How far it is not said. This was often repeated, until the spirit, becoming angry, refused any more to quit his disturber, and continued to trouble him, till Parson Jago was called in to use his skill, which was found effectual in laying Tucker's spirit to rest. There seem to have been three generations of Parsons with the name Jago at Wendron, through the 17th century and into the 18th century. I actually got in touch with the parish clerk for Wendron, who was very helpful, so a quick shout-out to them and their colleagues for their help with this. This is what they told me, and I quote, Robert Jago was vicar of Helston and Wendron from 1685 to 1706, his son John was vicar of the same parishes from 1706 to 1722. It would seem to have been that Robert's father, also Robert, who was the ghost dispatcher. He died in 1685. End quote. So the three generations are John, who is mentioned there by Thomas Tonkin as the incumbent in the early 1700s when he's writing, his father was called Robert, but it appears to be the grandfather, also called Robert, who was the ghost layer that we're talking about, and he died in 1685. So here we're back again in the 17th century. But Jago, I mean, he he was supposed to be um, so powerful that, um, you know, not only could he get rid of these ghosts for you, but he could also control them. And there's this sort of legend that he had um, sort of demons and ghosts as his actual servants, um, that they just did his bidding. Um, I almost imagine them like doing his housework for him and stuff like that. But the, the famous story is him having this demon groom um, that he, he didn't need anyone to look after his horse when he was like, traveling around the countryside, visiting parishioners, he would arrive at a location and he would like um, take his whip out and, and hit the ground with his whip. Where the whip hit, you know, this demon groom would appear and take care of his horse for him. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm fascinated by this idea of the demon groom. And that tells us something more about these ghost layers. They're not simply able to lay spirits to rest, but they have more powers besides. In an issue of Cornubiana, 
published in Penzance in the 1880s by the Reverend S. Rundle, we're told something about Parson Jago, or perhaps his son or grandson, that shows his character in a slightly different light and puts a very different slant on exactly what he was doing at Wendron. And I quote, One of the three Jagos, who were vicars at Wendron, was much renowned for his powers of necromancy. He was in the habit of taking people to St. Wendron Cross, where a man called Tucker was buried, and asking them whether they had a mind to see Tucker man. He would make him rise from the dead as a mark of delicate attention to them. End quote. So Rundle's version of things implies that Jago, rather than simply laying Tucker's spirit to rest, was showing off his powers to people by making his spirit rise from the dead. We have this term necromancy being used, which certainly isn't a word we associate with priests, but the practice of so-called black magic. And so it makes the role and character of these ghost layers a lot more complex. But these weren't the only powers attributed to Jago. Is it, is it also Jago that's supposed to have, because often these people are claimed to have second sight, but that he could tell if someone had sinned just by looking at them? I don't yes, know yes. See, there again, you see, there's this it's idea of control, isn't it? I think, you know, yeah. but um, they were they were using the, this uh, this idea that they were, uh, yeah, magical in some way um, to, to control their congregations. Or to get them to behave better, maybe. I That's don't how it reads to me, definitely. <laughs> All this starts to make me wonder, how much was this about reputation? If Parsons like Jago were renowned for their magical powers, their ability to control troublesome spirits, command demons, to know what you were up to, whether you had been committing any sins, does it all come back to the impact this reputation has on your congregation? Is it a way of keeping them in line? If so, to what extent were people like Jago encouraging these stories? It's tricky to say, but the next individual we're going to look at was possibly the most famous of all the ghost-laying parsons in Cornwall, and was said to have had his own reasons for perpetuating the legends surrounding him. Back in 1823, author Thomas Bond published his book with the rather long-winded title of Topographical and Historical Sketches of the Boroughs of East and West Loo in the County of Cornwall with an account of the natural and artificial curiosities and picturesque scenery of the neighbourhood. In it, he gives us an account of a local parson based at Talland by the name of Dodge. He writes, and I quote, about a century since, the Reverend Richard Dodge was vicar of this parish of Talland, and was, by traditionary accounts, a very singular man. He had the reputation of being deeply skilled in the black art, and could raise ghosts, or send them into the Red Sea at the nod of his head. The common people, not only in his own parish, but throughout the neighbourhood, 
stood in the greatest awe of him, and to meet him on the highway at midnight produced the utmost terror. He was then driving about the evil spirits. Many of them were seen, in all sorts of shapes, flying and running before him, and he pursuing them with his whip in a most daring manner. Not unfrequently he would be seen in the churchyard at dead of night, to the great terror of passers-by. Quite an introduction there by Bond to this man, Richard Dodge, who seems to have been vicar at Talon Church, which is near Polpero, from 1713 up until his death in 1747. Richard, um, yeah. Richard Dodge, yeah, yeah. So he, he was the one that was um, supposed to have had an encounter with, uh, with a coach of headless horses, wasn't he? Um, yeah. And he, he went in assistant of, of his, uh, his uh, reverend friend, Alexander Mills, was it? Um, and yeah, because he, Mills had been unable to banish this particular ghost. So he called on, on Reverend Dodge, who was from Talon Church, which is, is near, uh, near Polpero. What's interesting in that is that that even that initial part of the story says that Parsons in general might try and lay ghosts to rest, but that maybe certain individuals are seen as more powerful or have a real expertise in this area and might yeah. be called in because they are like an expert in that field. Yes, yeah, exactly. And Dodge was supposed to be, as you say, the expert um, in that particular area. He was said to be able to, to banish a spirit to a certain place. Um, and you come across this a little bit with the other vicars as well. And um, Reverend Dodge was said to have been able to send um, demons and spirits to the to the bottom of the Red Sea, which just seemed like random location. Um, but, but that was, you know, supposedly what, what he was able to do. They could also um, they could also set the ghosts like tasks, which I found quite odd. I don't know what you mm. think about it. So there's this idea of setting them almost, um, is it Sisyphean that they call it, like Sisyphus, setting them tasks that they weren't able ever to complete. So there's this story about a ghost um, down in Penzance. He was said to have set this ghost, uh, which was a woman, a task of making ropes from sand for a thousand years or until she made a rope that was long enough to stretch from St. Michael's Mount to Mausel. <laughs> yeah. So, that, yeah, there's, it's really fascinating, I think, that um, things that they could do, the different controls that they had, the different abilities that, that they had. And, yes, Dodge, he could send you to the bottom of, of the Red Sea, apparently. I don't know if they've picked the Red Sea just because it's sort of like, you know, that vague biblical. biblical connection. Yeah. But yeah, it's like it reminded me instantly of like the stories about, say, Tregeagle with like draining Dosemary Pool and that there's like a story convention there that's sort of repeated of like they're set this endless task. Yeah. But that's what makes it slightly different from our sort of modern idea of an exorcist. Yeah. Is yeah. it a sort of they're almost binding a spirit in some way or, or kind of pun almost punishing them. There are quite a few things going on in the stories relating to Richard Dodge, perhaps why he's probably the most well-known of the Cornish ghost layers. First off, 
I want to come back to this story of Dodge and this phantom coach. One of the earliest accounts comes down to us from Thomas Quiller Cooch in his History of Paul Perrow in 1871 and is written down by Margaret Ann Courtney in a slightly more condensed version. Parson Dodge's fame was not confined to his own immediate district and one day he received a letter from a fellow clergyman, the Reverend Grills. Now, in Quillacooch's version, it's actually Parson Abraham Mills, the rector of Lanreath, asking his assistance in exorcising a man habited in black who drove a sable coach, drawn by headless horses, across Blackadown or Blackadon, a neighbouring moor, as this apparition, whenever they happened to meet it, frightened his people almost out of their wits. He acceded to this request, and late one night, the two clergymen rode to the spot, where they waited for some time, but seeing nothing, decided to separate and return to their respective homes. Mr. Dodge, however, had not gone very far when his horse obstinately refused to proceed a step further in a homeward direction. This he interpreted to be a sign from heaven which he must obey, and giving it the rein, he allowed it to go as it willed. It wheeled round, and went back at a great pace to the moor. Here, through the gloom, he saw standing the black coach with the headless horses. Its driver had dismounted, and the Reverend Grills lay in a swoon at his feet. Mr. Dodge was terribly alarmed, but managed to keep his presence of mind and began to recite a prayer. But before he could finish it, the driver said, Dodge is come. I must be gone. Jumped onto his seat, and disappeared forever. There's little variations in this story, usually to do with the identity of the coach driver. In some versions, it's the spirit of a local landowner who was still angry about a dispute over the land at Blackadon. In other versions, it's the devil himself, or a demon. But whichever the version... What we get within this story is this concept that Dodge was deemed to be so powerful that spirits feared him and would recite this phrase, Dodge is come, I must be gone. Now, if you recall, when I was talking earlier about Parson Flavel, there was that line where Flavel's own spirit, after returning to Haunt Mullion, knows at some point he'll be laid to rest by another clergyman and remarks, when he comes, I must go. So, is this another little storytelling convention that's been passed down? He's the only one who sort of gets his own catchphrase, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, Dodge has come, I must be gone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I mean, it only, again, it adds to your, um, what's the word, your, your, must, your celebrity. Like you've got a, mm. you've got a little tagline and like, you know, ghosts fearing because, you know, hit and throw in catchphrase. Yeah, exactly. You know, it makes them notorious, doesn't yeah. it? You know, and, and obviously we're still talking about them now, aren't we? Two, three hundred years down, down the line. Um, their names are living in infamy. <laughs> That's true. true. Yeah. The whole idea of Dodge banishing spirits to the Red Sea and the concept of the Sisyphean task isn't a new one. This crops up in legends like Tregeagle, another character worthy of his own episode, 
whose spirit is tasked with emptying Dosemary Pool, which is said to be bottomless, using a limpet shell with a hole in it. Like the story I mentioned earlier of Wild Harris being tasked with counting those blades of grass, or Mrs. Baines in Penzance tasked with weaving or spinning, the idea that troublesome spirits, or often the ghosts of wrongdoers, are basically punished by being set these tasks is quite a common theme that crops up all over. So it's obviously a recurring theme and a a storytelling tradition that's become interwoven with the stories and alleged feats of these ghost layers. There's another side to Dodge's reputation as well. For a long time, it's been suggested that many of the stories connected with him served a different purpose during his lifetime. Alex Langstone, writing about Talon, says... Parson Richard Dodge, who served the church between 1713 and 1747, acquired a reputation as a ghost layer, almost certainly as a convenient cover to disguise his smuggling activities. He goes on to say, He spoke of demons on nearby Bridal Lane, a path that leads down to the beach, thereby ensuring that God-fearing folk would steer clear of the area at night and not disturb his Cornish-free trade. May's tales, in their retelling of Dodge and the Coach story, say the following. It was well known by many that Dodge's nighttime theatricals were a cover for a large smuggling operation he ran through Bridal Lane. Now, whether or not this was definitely the case is hard to say, but it's certainly feasible, given the scale of the smuggling that we know was going on in that area during the 18th century in particular. What do you know about the sort of real Dodge? Or is it hard to know much about the real Parson Dodge? Yeah, I don't think I've found a massive amount other than he was supposed to have been involved in the the smuggling trade um, down in Polpero. And there is this idea that some of the ghost stories in Cornwall um, were actually created by the smugglers to keep people away from certain coves, from certain caves that they didn't want people nosing into. So there's this idea perhaps that um, Dodge had uh, this this reputation um, and perhaps that was useful to him um, as well if he was involved in in the smuggling in Polpero as well. And it makes sense though, doesn't it? It makes sense to me. It does. Yeah. In certain communities, Polpero especially, you're told that the whole community was in on this, whether they were storing it or distributing it or buying it, you know. So why would you need a ghost story to keep people away? So it potentially puts some of these stories and legends about Dodge in a slightly different light. Was he maybe capitalising on this reputation he had as a powerful ghost layer? Did he perhaps even encourage these stories that he was out at night battling the undead and the forces of evil to keep away the curious? But then, if whole communities were said to be involved in these smuggling operations, as Liz pointed out, why would you need the whole Scooby-Doo-style ghost cover story? Or was it simply a way of deterring people so they didn't get in the way? Whatever they were up to, we can only speculate but it does make sense. 
I now want to look at a slightly different parson from another part of Cornwall, South Petherwin, which is up near Launceston, or Lanson, if you live locally, whose story comes down to us in a slightly different way. Again, this takes us back to the 17th century, the 1660s to be precise. We have a very famous story which has become known over the years as the Batathan Ghost, although that wasn't its original title. And what's particularly interesting about this tale is it's told in the form of a diary or journal, allegedly written down by the parson himself, whose name is variously given as Ruddle, Ruddell or Rundle, something along those lines. I've opted for Ruddle. He comes across as very different in personality to the others that we've encountered so far. And outside of this story... There's no real mention of him specifically as a ghost layer. No, not that I'd come across. And he's, like you said earlier, he's a very different kind of character. He, he comes across in the things that you read about him as quite gentle and yeah. calm, placid, um, not this sort of dramatic <laughs> uh, character like some of the others, the others are. Um, but yeah, he, he was uh, a, a vicar in the Launceston area in sort of the 1660s, wasn't he? Um, and uh, his story is interesting because it, it involves um, a magic circle, which again harks right back to witchcraft, which I, yeah, I know I've said it about six times, but I find it fascinating. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This this connection between between these two different disparate things. So yeah, isn't there mention of he draws a, a pentacle as well on on within the circle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there is, and William Woods as well is supposed to have had um, a walking stick with a silver top on it that had a pentacle actually carved into the silver ah. um, and, and lots of mythical symbols around, around the staff of, of the walking stick. So let's look a little bit deeper into this story involving Ruddle. It seems that it first appeared in written form around the year 1720 as part of a publication called Duncan Campbell's Packet under the title A Remarkable Passage of an Apparition. And there's been a lot of debate over the years as to whether Ruddle could have written this himself, because it's all in the first person, with the narrator given as Ruddle. Others have suggested it may have been the work of writer Daniel Defoe, famous for writing Robinson Crusoe. Either way, it then appears in various different forms over the years, with alterations along the way. And then it's adapted, and the whole story given a big overhaul, by the famous Reverend Robert Hawker. His version of the tale appeared in Charles Dickens' All the Year Round in 1867. I want to begin by looking at the earliest version we have, simply because it's closer in time to the alleged events in the story, without any additions or embellishments. Ruddle begins by telling us there has been some kind of disease in Launceston that year, and he's been called in to preach at the funeral of 16-year-old John Elliot, who's presumably died as a result of this sickness. 
Ruddle says, and I quote, I spake some words of commendation of the young gentleman, such as might endear his memory to those that knew him, and his words seem to have had a real effect on a gentleman in the congregation, who comes up to him after the service and says Ruddle's words have really had an impact on him and made him reflect on his own son, who he's obviously a little bit concerned about. After a bit of back and forth, Ruddle agrees to call at this gentleman's house the following Monday. So, Ruddle goes to this gent's house, and the man begins to tell him what's troubling him. First he began to tell the infortunity of the family in general, and then gave instance in the youngest son. He relates what a hopeful, sprightly lad he lately was, and how melancholic and sottish he was now grown. Then did he with much passion lament that his ill-humour should so incredibly subdue his reason, for the boy believes himself to be haunted with ghosts, and is confident that he meets with an evil spirit in a certain field about half a mile from this place, as often as he goes that way to school. The boy's parents are convinced that he's either just being lazy and trying to avoid going to school, or that he's fallen in love with a girl and that's what's really bothering him. Ruddle meets with the boy, who assures him that he's dedicated to his studies and he's not fallen in love, but he's genuinely being troubled by this ghost at a nearby field called Higher Broom's Quartils, and he wishes that his parents would actually believe him. His friends at school have also started teasing him about it, and no one will believe his story. But he says that if anyone had the courage to go with him, he'll prove that it's real. He says, and I quote, The woman which appears to me lived a neighbour here to my father, and died about eight years since. He continues, She never speaks to me, but passeth by hastily, and always leaves the footpath to me, and she commonly meets me twice or three times in the breadth of the field. End quote. It seems that this has been going on for months, with the woman appearing in the field on a daily basis, so eventually the boy changed his route to school, but that didn't work, for she started appearing in the narrow lanes instead, and that was even worse. The boy's clearly terrified, so Ruddle offers to accompany him on his walk the next morning to see for himself. So, as planned, early the next morning they set off, and I quote, We went into the field, and had not gone above a third part, before the spectrum, in the shape of a woman, with all the circumstances he had described her to me in the orchard the day before, met us and passed by, end quote. Ruddle goes back by himself on the 27th of July and once again encounters the spirit. Then the following morning he returns, taking the boy and his parents along with him. Sure enough, the spirit appears and flits past them and over a stile. They run after it, but the spirit is suddenly nowhere to be seen. He comments that the swiftest horse in England could not have conveyed himself out of sight in this short space of time. The boy's parents are terrified, and they confirm that they knew this woman when she was alive, and her name was Dorothy Dingley, and they'd even gone to her funeral. The next morning, Ruddle goes out very early into the field, and spends some time in prayer and meditation before the spirit appears to him. This time, he calls out to the ghost, who moves closer to him, and replies in words 
neither very audible nor intelligible. He goes back again after sunset, and when the ghost appears at the same place, they exchange a few words before the spirit quietly vanished, and neither doth appear since, nor ever will more to any man's disturbance. And that's it. In this early version of the story, Ruddle simply speaks to the ghost, which seems to lay it to rest, and it's not seen again. He doesn't go into any details of what was spoken, but says afterwards, and I quote, These things are true, and I know them to be so with as much certainty as eyes and ears can give me, and until I can be persuaded that my senses do deceive me about their proper object, and that by persuasion deprive myself of the strongest inducement to believe the Christian religion, I must and will assert that these things in this paper are true. End quote. There's nothing particularly over the top in this story. Ruddle comes across as just the local vicar who's genuinely trying to help this young man and to lay this spirit to rest, and going about it in perhaps the way you might expect, through prayer and perhaps certain words or passages spoken. By contrast, Robert Hawker's version, written nearly 150 years later, is a lot more dramatic and now bears the title The Batathan Ghost. In Hawker's version, there's now a few more details and embellishments when it comes to the actual ritual of laying the ghost to rest. He writes, and I quote, I betook me towards the field. It was void, and I had thereby due time to prepare. First, I paced and measured out my circle on the grass. Then did I mark my pentacle in the very midst, and at the intersection of the five angles I did set up and fix my crutch of rowan. Lastly, I took my station south at the true line of the meridian and stood facing due north. I waited and watched for a long time. At last, there was a kind of trouble in the air, a soft and rippling sound, and all at once the shape appeared and came on towards me gradually. I opened up my parchment scroll and read aloud the command." This is obviously a lot more in line with some of the other stories we've looked at relating to ghost layers, where we have elements of magic and the occult coming into play here. We're told that the spirit swims into the circle he's created, and the parson asks why she's not at rest, and the ghost replies because of a certain sin, which cannot be revealed in writing. Eventually, he says, with certain fixed rites... I did dismiss that troubled ghost, until she peacefully withdrew, gliding towards the west. Neither did she ever afterward appear, but was allayed until she shall come into her flesh to the valley of Armageddon on the last day. All very heightened and dramatic compared to the 1720 version. And it raises a few questions... Sabine Bering Gould, in his Cornish Characters and Strange Events, tries to look a little deeper into the history surrounding the ghost and the story, and claims that there was a family by the name of Dingley living in the parish at that time, and that a James Dingley had even assisted Ruddle in Launceston at one point. The family of the boy in the story are given as the Bly family, described as an ancient local family whose house was called Batathan. 
There have been theories over the centuries regarding Dorothy Dingley's relationship with the Bly family. In particular, the elder brother of the boy troubled by her ghost. Alex Langstone writes, and I quote, Dorothy caught the eye of the eldest son and is thought to have had an affair with him and eventually fell pregnant. It was rumoured that she died during her illegitimate and secretive childbirth. End quote. So that obviously raises some interesting questions about the family's relationship with Dorothy when she was alive and, perhaps, her reasons for haunting the area. Ruddle himself appears to have been parson at St Mary's in Launceston from 1663 to 1699. So it seems likely that Parson Ruddle, or Rundle, was there around that time in the 1660s, but it begs the question, did he actually write a journal recounting his experience in dealing with the ghost at South Petherwin, or was it all a work of fiction, written down in 1720, some 20 years after the parson's death, and then added to and embellished by the likes of Hawker and others over the years, it's very difficult to know for definite three centuries later. But the story of Dorothy's ghost seems to have lived on in local folklore for many years after the alleged events. In the 1890s, the Reverend P.T. Putman wrote to Baring Gould about the legend. He said, and I quote, In December 1896, a labourer died here, aged 72. For upwards of 40 years, he had worked at Batathen. He told me that one of the fields was called Higher Brown Park. He did not know the name Quartels or Quartils until the field was ploughed up. He told me there was a little path in it, which they called Dorothy Dinglet's Path, and that they used to frighten the farm apprentices with stories about her, but he had never met her himself. The farm had been sold in recent years. There is a part of the old house left used for a cider cellar. They used to call it Dorothy Dingley's Chamber. End quote. We've looked at four different individuals there, known to be ghost layers, and there are many other individuals and examples out there. I highly recommend checking out the stories surrounding Parson William Woods of Laddock, for example. But for the purposes of this episode, I basically picked four different characters that really stood out for me. So, what's going on in these ghost layer legends, and why is it that their stories have kind of been lost a bit over the years? You, you can read these stories in so many different ways. They are ghost stories as well. You know, they're, they're, yeah. they are, um, you know, delving into that sort of spooky world, you know, of, of uh, telling tales around, you know, candlelight during Halloween. They are, they are ghostly tales as well as much as they are about these, these bonkers vicars that were running about the countryside banishing demons, you know. I suppose kind of crossing the line between being your local parson, but also being a local cunning person in a way. Yeah. Like a white mm -hmm. witch or something like they are, they have the ability to be these sort of conjurers or can battle evil. What I find interesting is also there's like a kind of time frame for where these stories come from. Like they're all mm -hmm. 17th and 18th centuries. After yeah. that, I don't know if it's just in Cornwall, but they disappear a bit. I wonder if there's mm. anything specific about that period that might 
tie it together why people during that time might have been particularly prone to believing it or whether there's a real there's something going on in that time frame that might sort of help understand why why there's so much yeah it is interesting and you are right yeah it does seem to to be in quite a condensed period of time um whether there were sort of stories before that that obviously you know reporting of things um the further back you go you know the more difficult it is to to find those stories written down anywhere um whether there's a certain amount of that going on or or whether there was something very particular about the sort of end of the 17th into the early 18th century I, I I can't answer that question I mean obviously as you said earlier there was a lot of religion religious reform and flick flacking wasn't there between one thing and, and another um, and obviously the unrest around the civil war as well but it does seem to have petered out as as the years went on as you start to move towards the Victorian period uh, you know belief in sort of evil spirits and, and ghosts and things like that. You know, I come across a lot in the newspaper articles that refer to the Cornish people as being very backward and a bit, well, basically inferring that we we're a bit dumb. Um, and especially in the Victorian period, the, it was if if people were found to have done anything that revolved around superstition, it, they would be immediately sort of um, derided for their ignorance and and you know because we all know that these things don't exist, you know. Basically, I think there's a guy called Jason Simmons or Simmons who has kind of compiled this work by a guy called William Painter, William H. Painter, who's writing about Cornish witches. Yes, yeah. And a lot of them are quite modern cases from sort of the 19th, 30th, 20th century. Yeah. But it talks about some of the um, that and some other sources where there are like that comes to court and there's sort of laughter in the courtrooms, often by social superiors watching from the galleries. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. And so I wonder if there's this classified in terms of belief and you know people living in towns people living in rural communities whether it's just that there was a holding on to a belief in superstition and whether that was a case of also um in the west country whether it was just that some of these beliefs persisted for longer i don't know very much so i would have said very much so yeah i've come across you know similar stories that you're talking about for example you know a farmer that thinks that um the old woman in his village has cursed all his cows or something like that and it ends up going to a magistrate's court and they basically get laughed out of 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 court because you know why would you believe something so silly she couldn't possibly have put a curse on your heifers you know um so yeah and it is very much put across as as an education thing you know that the the lower uneducated the great unwashed you know that we're still believing in these in these silly superstitions and that if you are you know educated and knowledgeable and and you will know that this these things can't possibly happen you know um so yeah, you know, it, it, I think you're you're quite right. It's very much a, a a class a class thing, yeah. As time goes on, anyway. Interesting, this idea that when we get to the Victorian period, some of these beliefs and superstitions are starting to be regarded as old-fashioned. 
And it makes you wonder whether, over time, this became one of the reasons these stories sort of disappeared into history. Both Margaret Ann Courtney and the Reverend C.A. Johns are good examples of writers who come across as very sceptical about these old legends. And there is this slight sense of looking down on those who are still holding on to what are regarded as quaint and maybe antiquated superstitions. It's funny, really, that in the Victorian period, there's this definite interest in preserving these stories, these legends and folklore in general. But that anyone who still genuinely believed in these sorts of superstitions comes to be viewed as naive or uneducated. And I suspect that probably played a part in why certain stories and customs stopped being passed down. The stories of Flavel, Jago, Dodge and Ruddle are for me not only fascinating, but they're important, because they do start to unlock the way that people in Cornwall centuries ago saw the world around them. Not only are they great as the ghost stories to tell and pass down by the fireside, you know, don't go to the crossroads at night or you might encounter Tucker's ghost, but it also says something about the impact these parsons had on their congregation. The power that some of them were deemed to possess, that their role was not as clear-cut as it might sound, that it could involve magic and sorcery. Were these men simply local eccentrics? Or were they clever opportunists who helped to perpetuate some of these legends and stories as a way of managing their flock, keeping their parishioners in line and away from sinning? Who knows? But for me, it's important that we keep telling these stories. And thanks to the work of people like Elizabeth Dale, Alex Langstone, and other folklorists and researchers, Hopefully we can keep these stories and these traditions alive. That's it for this episode. A massive thank you to Elizabeth Dale. And if you want to learn more about Parson Ghost Layers, along with a range of different Cornish folklore and legends, then check out her blog at cornishbirdblog.com and be sure to check out the Cornish Bird podcast as well. If you enjoyed this episode, and you've enjoyed the series so far, then please give us a like and a follow on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to support the project and help me to keep creating these episodes, then you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash The Pisky Trap. The Pisky Trap is produced and presented by me, Keith Wallace, with music by Elizabeth Westcott, artwork by Karis Harrington. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back again very soon.